Hey friends, I just want to invite you to consider joining the Theology Nara Patreon community. This is a group of followers who believe in the ministry and work of Theology Nara and want to support it financially. And honestly, I've been so impacted by the people who have chosen to support this podcast. Um, every month they send in a bunch of questions. A lot of them are really personal and I get to spend time responding to them in a private podcast. And we, you know, we'll message each other throughout the month and post responses to each other's questions. I'm actually going to start something new this fall, a monthly live Zoom chat with some of the members. And I'm super looking forward to actually seeing more of their faces every month. And there's other perks that come up, like a free virtual pass to the Theology Nara Exiles in Babylon conference every year. But honestly, I don't want to make it sound transactional. Every single single Patreon member that I've talked to says the same thing. We like all the perks. Uh, we're thankful for them, but we're just more thankful to support the ministry of theology in the raw, and we're glad to do so. So if this is you, if you've been impacted by Theology in the Raw, you can join the Theology in the Raw community for a minimum of five bucks a month by going to patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. That's patreon.com forward slash Theology in the Raw. The link is in the show notes. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. My guest today is Dr. Patrick Schreiner, who's the director of the residency PhD program and associate professor of New Testament and biblical theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He previously taught at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, and he received his PhD from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of several books. The latest one that he wrote uh, is the one that we talk about on this podcast. It's called Political Gospel, Public Witness in a Politically Crazy World. It just came out in October of 2022. It's a fantastic book laying the groundwork for how uh, Christians should think about um, not necessarily secular politics in all of the specificity of what that even means, but how we should even arrange our thinking theologically as a political entity, as a, a church that is a polis, uh, worshiping a savior who is king and um, believing in a gospel, which is a very, very political message as we talk about in this podcast. So please welcome back to the show, the one and only Dr. Patrick Schreiner. I think it was just over a year ago, Patrick, when I had you on. Um, I forgot what we talked about in the last episode. Did you have a book out before that? I think we talked about The Ascension. Oh, and, that's right. And, oh, yeah. And many other things, which is what we usually do when we start talking. <laughs> that's right. You wrote, yeah, The Ascension. Yeah, that was super helpful because that's something that doesn't get addressed very often. You you just came out with this book. Uh, I think it, October is when it came out. Uh, Political Gospel, Public Witness in a politically crazy world. I'm not, I'm, I've read about maybe two thirds and I just started your section of revelation. Yeah, dude, this, I know we're talking offline because I'm working on a book, a very similar book. And I'm like, dang, you're, 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 <laughs> you're, you're unearthing some of these new Testament themes that sometimes on a popular level don't get addressed very often. And especially these themes in how the gospel in the first century had this political scent to it. Maybe, I mean, more than just a scent, like it, like it was mm -hmm. a political message, not partisan. And you make that really clear, but a very political message. The gospel is, is, is very political. And you, you brought that out really well. Um, and that's something that I really want to hit on in my forthcoming book. So hopefully I will give you due credit where credit is due, uh, as I draw on your work, but Patrick, well, um, I, I'm learning from others too. So, you know, like I'm drawing on other scholars and I've learned from so many people. So I'm, I'm taking what I've learned from others and just trying to help other people see it too. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm curious how the book has been received so far. Has it been? I mean, it hasn't been that long since it's been out, but um. yeah, it, it's it hasn't been that long. It's been received well. I, I mean, I think when I get to the more specific application to our political lives in modern day America, I can see some reviews coming in where they don't agree with everything I say. But I knew this was going to be a pretty um, heated topic and. I knew not everyone would agree with everything I said because it is on politics. And so actually one of my early reviewers said, you're going to get crucified by, for this book. <laughs> and uh, I, I said, I don't think so. I think it's going to be okay. But um, his point was, yeah, it, it's just a contested topic. And so I think those who have read it have appreciated it. Yet at the same time, I can see some readers when I talk about COVID or I talk yeah. about riots and I talk about race relations or whatever it is. Um, I mean, there's just strong opinions about all these things. And I recognize when I wrote this book, I'm stepping into conversations that people will disagree about. But I, I really hope, even though in some sense, this book will be dated by the examples that I give, I spend most of my time on the biblical text because you know, when you come to political theology or political conversation, so much has to do with kind of political theory, political philosophy. And that, that, honestly, those are not my expertise. But I, you know, I study the New Testament and the Bible. And I also think that's not only for me, but I think the best way to get into these conversations for people in the church is to show them in the scriptures that mm -hmm. the scriptures have a lot more to say about how we interact with politics than we might imagine. So most political theory books or theology books from Christians deal with Genesis 9, Mark mm -hmm. 12, paying taxes to Caesar, and Romans 13, and that's yeah. it. And I wanted to show people, hey, you know, politics is kind of all over the place right, here. Right. <laughs> and so it's not just those three texts. It's actually the very fact that Jesus announced the gospel of the kingdom and that we have a new city that we are aiming towards and that our faith and our allegiance is in him. So I wanted people to see man, politics is is really the purpose of Jesus's coming. And that's a weird way to put it. But when he when he announces a kingdom, I don't know how else to understand that language. And, you know, yeah, yeah, we, we can get into it. But it's just I grew up in evangelicalism and it's so much about your personal relationship with the Lord. And I, I don't want to deny any of that. I think that's really good. But what we tend to forget is that our faith is a public reality. It's not just a personal reality. Right. right. And so for evangelicals, maybe who have grown up in the church, maybe who are frustrated with how we've engaged with politics. I'm hoping this might open their eyes to say, wow, Christianity is a lot more public than we think. And it has a lot more to say about how we interact with politics than we think. And you make it really clear that when you say the word politics, you're, you're not, you distinguish that from American partisan partisanship. And I think that's yeah. the, when people say, don't, let's not make church a political place. Let's not make church a political place. Don't do politics from the pulpit. What they mean is, partisan well what they should mean is don't elevate kind of partisanship or divide the, sh the divide the church along partisan lines but the gospel is intrinsically political and that's what a, a big part of what your big part of your book is all about it stands on that foundation yeah. can, can you tease that out a little bit for somebody who's like wait whoa wait wait a minute the gospel is political can, can you give us some maybe some biblical examples of of what you mean by that and how Biblically, the gospel, the euangelion, is a political message. Yeah, as you just mentioned, when we say politics or political, we, I think in the American mindset, assume partisanship. 
So when I say the gospel is political, and the first thing I had to say was, I'm not saying we have to be partisan. Politics, if you go back to the word, is actually about the organization and governance of a people. It's a public reality. So when I'm saying the gospel is political, I'm saying it's a public reality. And not only that, but politics has to do with who has the right to rule our lives. And as Christians, <laughs> our main confession is Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. So our, our confession is that is very political. If Jesus, now I think one of the lines I use in the book is Jesus is not just the king of your life, but the king of kings, right? That's what yeah. Revelation says. He's the king of kings. That means he's saying every other sovereign on the earth who has been, who will be, who is now, I am the king of that sovereign. Mm -hmm. And so when we come together as a church, we are confessing Jesus is Lord, Jesus is king. And that's above all earthly citizenship. That's above all earthly kingdoms. Now, I, I do want to pause and say, I don't think those two necessarily have to be in opposition, but we can talk about that more. But when you go to the scriptures, uh, many of the words that we think of as religious words are actually political terms. So gospel, euangelion, basar in Hebrew. Um, if you go through even just a word study, and word studies don't do everything for us here, but if you just go through a word study and how that word is used, it's used for the victory of a king and a kingdom. <laughs> yeah. So when, when Jesus announces the, the gospel of his kingdom, he's saying the victory of my kingdom has come. And so when we hear gospel, we hear um, Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. And, and there, there's, many, there's much truth to that. But gospel in the Greco-Roman time and in the Old Testament, it meant that a king or a kingdom had, had victory. And so you tie the term gospel to kingdom. And kingdom is this new city, this new uh, realm that we're going to live in where Jesus is king and we are going to live in a new flourishing society. And so when Jesus announces the gospel of the kingdom, I think the Jews are all like, yep, this is what we've been waiting for. <laughs> like, we are waiting for that new city to come. We are waiting for you to restore our temple. We are waiting for you to actually kick Rome out of our land so that we don't have to be under their thumb. And what's so, at least what I feel like has happened is it's so easy to say, well, Jesus came as not that type of king. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he came and he died on the cross. And so we then just erase all politics from his message. Mm -hmm. But I think that's that's a half truth. He did come and he he was uh, Peter was confused about what type of Messiah he was going to be. Right. He was like, no, you can't go to the cross and die. But in the midst of doing that, Jesus is not denying his own political life or his own political claims. He's just redefining what politics is for Peter. Right. And so so often we just go, oh, Jesus, you know, Jews thought he was coming for with a spiritual or um, political message. But where he really came with was the Sermon on the Mount. And it's all about your heart. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say, no, that, that's a half truth. That's not completely true. Because when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified as a political rebel. Okay. <laughs> he, even though Pilate did think he was innocent, they, they put up above the sign on his head, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, right? And so what Pilate was so scared about was rebellion rebellion in Jerusalem at that time. And so we can we can just begin with Jesus and talk about the language of gospel, of kingdom. Uh, Matt Bates and other people have done good work on faith. Pistis mm -hmm. can, can sometimes mean allegiance, sometimes mean loyalty. So just think about Jesus's announcement in, in Mark. He says, uh, the time is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom. <laughs> and I just want to say all of those terms are really political. <laughs> and we know this is true because King Herod, when Jesus is born, he's like, I got to kill this new king. Like, right, right, right. <laughs> it's not like 
some spiritual guru, guru is born, and uh, Herod's like, right, that's going to be fine. He's just going to talk about people's hearts. No, Herod's nervous. He's like, I, I don't like the sound of a new king being born. So w- one of the, my big projects is just to open people's eyes to the political reality uh, of the message of Christianity and the gospel itself. And I haven't even gotten to Paul, but it's all over Paul as well. So right. we, we can go there if you want to. Well, just to, um, you know, sometimes people think that the Roman Empire, the first century, there, there, there was like loads of religious persecution that Rome didn't tolerate other religions or whatever. And that's just historically exactly untrue. Like Rome was incredibly inclusive of other religions. They were very tolerant of other religions. What they didn't tolerate was any kind of gathering group assembly or, or religion that was a threat to the fabric of the Roman empire. So when Christians right. were persecuted, it wasn't that it, it wasn't like how Christians are persecuted today in parts of maybe India or maybe some certain Muslim countries or whatever, where it's like, you know, no, we don't tolerate this religion because we don't agree with this religion. That's not right. Rome at all. Um, they yeah. only persecuted people or especially crucified people when it was a, when they was seen perceived as a threat to the political fabric of the day. Is that, I mean, is that, yeah, it's cer- certainly. I mean, it was a polytheistic culture. There were many gods. And what Rome did was they were like, you kind of practice your own thing. <laughs> we can you, we can put up with your God. Just don't mess with our society too much. Right. And if you go to Acts 17, when Paul preaches just Jesus, the Messiah, notice the accusation against him. And I, I detail this in the book. But the accusation against him is you are defying the decrees of Caesar. And then riots break out. Yeah. And so there was something about his message like you think the message is just about your personal salvation. Well, in Thessalonica, man, they viewed it as defying the decrees of Caesar. So they viewed it, Jesus as king as going against the kingship of Caesar. Now, I think Paul and Jesus actually reframe that they kind of misunderstood Jesus's own claims. But I think the fact of the matter is it was a political claim that challenged the Roman Empire. And I, you know, I don't remember my history. Is it Trajan who says, hey, watch out for their political assemblies? Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> um, well, one Roman writer, whoever it is, I think it's Trajan, but he he literally calls the ecclesia, and you, you know this, the yeah. church, is a political body. It's people being called out of the city to vote on things in terms of political assembly. And so, uh, you know, I, I talked about gospel and kingdom and faith, but the other part of my book is, to point out the church is, is itself a political assembly. And so <laughs> I think a line I used is like, Paul didn't go around and get persecuted and go through shipwrecks and storms and go to prison and uh, end, end up dying so that we could have really nice relationships with one another. No, he was forming a new body politic. Right. He was forming churches. So when we hear church, and this is what's so hard because to move from the political situation of the first century to the modern era. When we hear church, when we hear religion, we think private sphere. And in the first century, politics and religion were just not two separate things. They were the same thing. And you know that from the Old Testament because when one nation won, their God won. Right. <laughs> and so that was just part, and I would actually argue right now, you know, I believe in separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. But the idea that we can cordon off our beliefs from how we vote or how we think is just ridiculous. You have to bring religion to the public square. You can't not bring religion into the public square. The question is, how do we do that when we disagree? Right, right, right. <laughs> um, and so I, I would encourage Christians, you don't separate your faith from your politics. 
you actually let them inform your politics. And, you know, either people are doing that probably uh, to an extent where you become so partisan or you're not doing it at all. You're so separating your faith from how you think through politics. And I think Paul was just and Jesus and the first century, for that matter, were like, these are just not two separate realms for us. So how would you so you, you made a distinction between the separatists who um, try to keep their faith and their political involvement just completely. Well, yeah, the, the separatists, the, 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 you know, my politics completely different than my faith or. Yeah, or maybe they, define it as like a privatistic more. Yeah. right? Because separatist has a different uh, less like separating from society. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, or, or on the other extreme is are, are people who be say, because I'm a Christian, therefore I'm going to be very partisan or, or be involved in secular politics in a way. And you, so you, you make this distinction, what would be the middle or what would be the Christian posture with regard to secular politics in a way that would reflect the kind of biblical paradigm that you painted in the book? Yeah. So the paradigm I give, and you know, you can challenge this all you want to, or people can, um, I recognize it's just a paradigm that I hope people will find useful, but that we either make our faith partisan or we make it private, kind of the two options you gave, and that Christianity is truly a politic. That's a, it doesn't mean that it only has political implications, but it is itself a politic. In other words, yeah. what is our ultimate politic? It is the gospel message. It is Jesus's life, death, resurrection, ascension. It is how we are to interact in the church. How can we be the most political beings <laughs> during our time here on the earth, I would argue as Christians, the most political thing you can do is go to church and probably take the Lord's Supper, <laughs> right? <laughs> like that's the most political act you can make. So when I say Christians, I, I, it's, at one point in the book, I say Christians are not nearly political enough. And people are like, wait, hold on. I thought the whole point was for us to get people to stop talking about politics. No, I'm, I'm saying redefine what politics is in your own mind and recognize Jesus' kingship is your main politic. Now, what that means is not that you cordon off, as I said, uh, your faith from how you interact in secular politics, that you make it a private thing. Nor does it mean that one political party, because it's a political party of the earth, is going to represent everything of the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> and so we are going to interact with um, our political parties and try to say which party or which um governor or which local representative is most reflecting what we think will bring the most flourishing to all of humanity. And usually that will align with a Christian ethic. Uh, you know, we, we could go through different situations, but um, you, you do have to make decisions uh, when you come to the voting booth, when you think about who is going to reign over us. And we want to think as Christians, you know, I, I'm still thinking through this myself, but as Christians, we want to think what would be best for all of humanity, not just us, <laughs> right, yeah. as Christians. So in other words, what will bring the most flourishing peace and happiness, I would argue, to all groups within our nation and within the world? And th that should direct our voting. So those are kind of the two paradigms. Christians either make their faith uh, private or partisan. And I say, make it political. <laughs> yeah. Make it truly political and yeah. understand what that means. I, I like, yeah. And you, and you even paint a picture that when we talk about political, um, we're talking about a polis, which is a Greek word for a, like a city, a community, mm -hmm. and that the church should embody what a heavenly polis um, should look like. So the, right. you know, the Bible has a lot to say about economics, which is typically a political category, but 
That's right. It's it is a political category. It's also a very biblical category. It talks about race relations. It talks about um, caring for the poor and the sick and the needy and the elderly. So healthcare. You know, I mean, there's everything that secular politics is trying to accomplish in the world. The church also has a a, a guidebook on how we, the church, can embody that. So I, you know, I think you even have a phrase in the book which I found helpful. And in fact, I would almost want to almost a stronger phrase. I don't know what the alternative would be, but you talked about, you know, the best way that the Christians can subvert the empire is to simply exist, you know, as the kingdom of God, like embody the very thing that we are wanting this politician to do and this decision and this party and that party and whatever, like, like let, let's first embody the very uh, politic polis uh, way of living that, that we're, we're kind of hoping <laughs> would come about through secular politics, if that makes sense. So that's right. Um, yeah. 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 And I think the way to think of the church is it's an embassy of the kingdom. And what an embassy does is it represents another nation's desires, uh, values <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. in, in a foreign land. And this, this, we were talking earlier about kind of your exile theme. That's exactly what the church is. It's an embassy of another kingdom on the key. So it's an embassy of the kingdom of heaven on the kingdom of earth. And what we are supposed to be as a community, now we are, we're going to do this imperfectly, yeah. is we are supposed to Im- embody those values of the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. And so we should be a community that looks fully political in that sense, in terms of, as you said, how we share our resources. I mean, for goodness sakes, read Acts again. That's exactly what they did. And, and then, as you said, even with uh, race relations, um, it, it's a very multi-ethnic community with different cultures, Hellenistic and Hebraic Jews even are coming together. And they're saying, hey, some people are being left out, Act 6, of the daily distribution, so we need to provide for them. And so in one sense, the church was supposed to be the first social safety net (laughs) that we had. Um, And so we're to provide for one another in these ways. Now, I guess the only nuance I would add to this is that at the end of the book, I don't think you've gotten here yet, but at the end of the book, I say, why is political theology, why is political discipleship so hard? It's because we live between the times. Yeah. In other words, the city of man still exists, but the city of God has broken in <laughs> to this realm. But there's overlap between the two. But at some point, the city of man will no longer exist and only the city of God will exist. Yeah. yeah. So as the church, we're not trying to cancel the city of man yet. <laughs> We're not trying to get rid of them because I think in the meantime, as we live between the times, this is very Baptist of me, I guess, but God has given an authority to the state that he has not given to the church, and he's given an authority to the church that he's not given to the state. And so in the Old Testament, there's a little bit more overlap on those. In the New Testament, I do think there is some separation that Romans 13 so he's given the state the authority of the sword, of punishment. Mm-hmm. And he's given, in Matthew 16, the church the authority of the keys of the kingdom. Um, and so the, the state, if I can just zero in on that, the state shouldn't be telling us who should be members of our church. <laughs> right. And we should not be telling the state how they're to run secular policies or um who they should be maybe even, I don't know, like incarcerating and so forth and so on. That, that goes beyond our authority uh, as the church. They are, to, they are to carry those out. We can say this is what we believe, but um, we, we need to recognize there are two distinct authorities. So while I fully affirm the church is an embassy of the kingdom, they are not trying to 
I mean, this is a Christian nationalism conversation, right? We are not trying to create a new realm in one sense where the the government is no longer necessary. That will be the case, Mm. as Revelation says, Mm -hmm. but I think Christ will do that. And we are supposed to exist now in the meantime, living kind of between those times as exiles. Okay. So that's a lot there. You yeah. feel free to push back on that, but no, I, I, and I did. I jumped ahead and read the conclusion just to kind of see where you would end up going, um, and I'll, I'll go back and read the inter, intermediate chapters. Um, yeah, I, yeah. So you invite me to push back. I, you know, I was because I'm in. Whenever I find myself in such agreement with a project, I try. I really turn on my devil's advocate just because I'm I'm testing my own thoughts. Like I'm like, okay, yeah. I agree with this, but you know, what, what is the pushback? Cause if I end up saying this, like I'm going to get critique, like what would that critique look like? So what one, um, question, I don't know, call it pushbacks. It's, it's, I'm, I'm still working through this is this tension between well, and you even talk about it in the book, I haven't got, I haven't finished your revelation chapter yet, but the tension between Romans 13 and revelation 13, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, Romans 13 is, you know, submit to the state. It's under the authority of God. God established a state to punish evil and reward good. And it's just kind of seemingly glowing or at least positive sounding portrait yeah. of the government. And then right. you get to write it's Rome for goodness sake. It's Rome. <laughs> it's Nero. Literally Nero's on the throne this time, <laughs> exactly, yeah. you know? Um, and, and, I, and I say in the book, I don't want to interrupt you too much, but like literally Paul is killed by these dudes. Right. So so is Peter, and so is their Messiah. And they're right. like, "Hey, go ahead and submit to them." So, um, yeah. yeah. But 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 even that, I could I could see, I could see someone say, "Well, yeah, you know, the state's not perfect, and they kind of dropped the ball on this, and they persecuted, you know, Christians or whatever." And but Rome, Revelation thirteen says that the the government or Rome is demonically empowered. Like it's not just, and and this is where I'd want maybe some clarity because on some portions of your book and again i'll say it one more time i've read the whole thing so maybe you worked this out but some parts it almost you almost it seems like you're saying you know the secular government is a shadow of the real thing it falls short but then revelation 13 and, and there are a couple other places where you actually do kind of reflect a more revelation 13 perspective that it's not just a shadow it's actually in opposition to it is empowered yeah. by satan it is you know, under God's judgment, because it is working against God bringing in new creation. It's not just bringing in new creation imperfectly and will ultimately fizzle out. It's actually the enemy of the kingdom of God, so, so to speak. And yeah, I, I do love the paradigm of subvert and submit. We subvert the empire by living out, embodying the gospel truth. That is a very sub- subversive message, which you brought out great in Acts 17, you know, the turning the world mm-hmm. upside down by preaching Jesus. Yeah, right. Um, and then, yeah, we're also called to submit. And I think Kevin Rose, the one who who said, you know, you have all this subversive stuff going on throughout Acts, and yet there's not a single point when the Christians actually did anything illegal. Like there's no right. revolt, there's right. no riot. Every they're time they try innocent. to lock them up, they have to release them because like we we've got nothing on these people, even though they're disrupting the fabric of society. If I'm representing Roe yeah. correctly, um, so that that's I, I don't know. Is there a place to say that the government is not just imperfect or inadequate or falling short, but is actually demonically empowered in opposition to the kingdom of God. Is this just, is this just, just a tension we have or how do you work that out? Yeah, I, that's a great question. And you know, the word I used in the book is that it's a paradox. Um, okay. yeah. And I kept coming back to that word because I felt that tension as I wrote the book. I'm like, well, which of these do I emphasize? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, 
you know, I was I, I was even having a conversation with someone the other night and they're like, you know, uh, we really struggle with two things that seem to be in opposition being true at once. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I think that's really true, that it's OK to say two things can be true at once. So I use that line because I do think Romans 13 and Revelation 13 both exist in our Bible and that somehow the state can both be a servant of God and empowered by Satan himself to cause chaos. <laughs> so God will use it to provide order sure. and Satan will corrupt them to provide chaos. And I think both of those things, I mean, maybe Job is a good example here, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Where both of those things can, ex I mean, I know they're not talking about the state there, but there is like God is sovereignly working in the midst of this but Satan is also just wreaking havoc in Job's life. Yeah. And so maybe maybe we can use that paradigm. Yeah, that's good. And recognize that God is is providing good things for us through the government, but we can never ultimately hope in them. And this is where this is the paradox that's so hard because at least when I talk to Christians, either they tend towards that submission or subversion. And I I want to say if you're a submission person, you need to remember the subversion. Yeah, <laughs> if you're yeah. a subversion person, you need to remember the submission. And not only that, I could say so much about this, but on the cross, Jesus brings submission and subversion together. Yeah. yeah. He submits to Rome and thereby conquers them. Because what he did, I think at least the way the gospels present the cross, is he became the king of the, the whole world through his cross, resurrection, and ascension by submitting to Rome. And so I, suddenly the cross does become our marching orders as Christians. How do we how do we live? And I think Peter follows this up very well. If you want to talk about exile identity, how do we live in a way that is both subversive and submissive? Well, I think our first action is submit to them, but in so doing, it actually subverts them <laughs> because we're recognizing we're submitting to you not because of you, but because of God, which is yeah. really the line from Romans 13. I think Paul is reflecting on I mean, Romans 13 is really about do we pay taxes? And I think yeah. he's going back to Jesus's words in Mark 12. So I really believe that we have to be able to say both of those are true at the same time. God is working through them. Now, um, and maybe I'll just say something else about the good that the government provides. It's very, I think it's very easy for me to take our governing system for granted because I've always lived under yeah. a non-totalitarian regime. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I'm just trying to recognize where I sit historically, that my tendency is just to assume this is the way it always goes. But the fact of the matter is we can discuss the government without them knocking on our door <laughs> and mm -hmm. saying you're arrested. We can um, drive down the street and not get robbed typically, not everyone, but right. Typically you're not robbed every time you drive down the street or uh, traffic lights work or our internet system is, you know, up and running. Yeah. Um, you can buy clothes. Amazon still works. Uh, roads are paved. All these things we take, I think we take so much for granted, but the fact of the matter, the reason we're having this discussion is because people have sacrificed themselves to serve society. And this is not like a kingdom goal. I don't think, I think it's, they're just serving humanity. Mm. And so we, God is providing order. God is providing peace, at least in our land. Uh, and I think around the world through governing systems, unless they're totalitarian regimes that are just causing chaos. And we, we do see that all over the world, that that does happen. 
but that we can be very thankful. And I think um, Paul, I mean, this is a very common way of saying it, but Paul recognized I'm able to spread the gospel because of Rome in one sense. Like, and they also kind of stopped the spread of the gospel, right? So how can like the Roman roads and then the fact that we all basically speak one language and the fact that there's uh, water systems and so forth and so on. He recognizes Rome is actually, can I say it this way? I know this is controversial. Rome is actually advancing the spread of the gospel, not intentionally, but unintentionally. Yeah. 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 At the very same time, they are opposed to what we are doing because they recognize we are a grassroots movement that are saying one day you are you are no longer going to be necessary. <laughs> and so I don't know. I guess yeah. I just come back to can we live in that tension? Maybe I don't have a great answer, but can we live in the tension of recognizing governing systems are both? They're both corrupt and we are to advocate for the kingdom of God and therefore are good. Yeah. And we are to support them in that. No, that's good. It, it is a tough tension. Even, you know, you mentioned Romans 13 calling Rome the servant of God. Well, that phrase, as as you know, I mean, goes back to the Old Testament when God called the Assyrians, you know, that's right. my servant and Cyrus, my Messiah and Persia, my servant and Babylon, my servant. Doesn't mean, you know, the Assyrian practice of skinning civilians alive was like, applauded by God, but God is so sovereign that he can even use these wicked, twisted nations to carry out his covenant purposes, namely fulfilling his promise that if you keep disobeying me, I'm going to exile you to a foreign land. And that's, you know, well, God had to sovereignly use another country politically to do a ton of evil towards Israel. And yet that is an extension of God's good covenant plan. Yeah. purpose, yeah. judgment, yeah. and then yeah. he used he, another he one through to, these governing systems. Right. Exactly. And, the, and yeah. then he oversaw the takeover of Babylon from Persia and allowed them to re- let the Jews return home and even fund the building of the temple, rebuilding of the temple and so on and so forth. So it, yeah, it is a tough tension because none of that means that there is intrinsic goodness. Well, see, I don't, I, I like what you're saying though about like some, the government entity can be empowered by, we can even go Revelation 13. It's empowered by Satan. Doesn't mean every single thing they do is satanic and of the devil. Right. Like they can be doing things sometimes unintentionally that do reflect the image of God in them too, right? Yeah. And, 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 and I think about governing it. systems as they follow an ethic, a metaphysic, a natural law, I know I'm using big terms here, that are based in reality that does promote goodness. You know what I mean? Because God, God's goodness is represented in creation just generally. And so even if they're not Christian governors or Christian presidents or Christian, you know, servants, um, they can recognize this is how human beings are created <laughs> and this would be good for them. And this would be bad for them. Mm-hmm. Um, another text, uh, maybe you want to go on to another topic, but another text, that I always like to go to on this topic is is First Peter two thirteen through seventeen, where he says same thing as Paul: be subject, be submissive, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And if you know what Roman rulers were claiming about themselves, they were claiming like my grandfather, my father was a god. Julius Caesar was a god. He's a son of God. And Peter says submit to them, but remember they're creatures. <laughs> Don't think of them as gods. And I think that's just a great like application point for us as Americans. Like we submit to them, but don't worship them because right. they're human beings. And then he goes on and, and he goes on in verse 17 
to say, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. And I, I think all of our political theology basically can be wrapped up in that one verse. Because what he does is he tells them, honor everyone. And I think it was Joel Green who says, honor everyone means honor the slave who walks out of the house in the same way that you would honor the emperor. Honor everyone and honor the emperor. In oh, other words, yeah. you're to honor everyone. So that's, so a, so that's a really subversive claim in that. That's in, a very in, subversive yeah. claim in the midst of saying, honor him, right? Huh. Like, <laughs> honor the emperor. And the emperor would be like, yeah, sure. And then he hears, honor everyone. He's like, wait a second. Well, you're supposed to treat me like everyone else? And basically... Peter's like, yes, honor everyone. But in the middle, it's love the brotherhood and fear God. You reserve a special place in your heart for the church and for God himself. So it's love the brotherhood and fear God, but honor everyone else. So I think in the midst, there's the submission and subversion. (laughs) The emperor would have read that. They didn't read these letters. But if they would have read that, they would have been like, I'm not sure whether I like these guys or not. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which is exactly, which is exactly what all of the Roman rulers do when both Jesus and Paul come before them. They're like, um, I'm a little concerned about you guys, but I don't have anything against you because you seem to be like the best citizens that we have. Um, you're, you're arguing about the resurrection of the dead. I don't know what to do with you, but uh, maybe we should get rid of you because you might cause some some riots or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. but they're all declared innocent. They they have nothing, and I, I think that's really huge for us. If if you're a if you're a subversive person just in your nature politically, remember that every time Jesus and Paul come before the Roman Empire, they are declared innocent. Mm. Now, man, this gets really hard, though. What if our culture starts saying things (laughs) that we believe are part of the foundation of our beliefs are unlawful? We, We might have to go before governors and rulers and be declared unlawful. But that, that's the situation where we must obey God above men, Acts 5, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but but, but, but I, I still think it's helpful just to remember Paul and Jesus and Peter and all of them did everything they could to stay innocent before the Roman governors. Because why? I think it was because it was part of their witness. Yeah. They don't want anything to get in the way of the gospel message. Yeah. They don't want, they don't want to stand before these governors and them to say, you know what? You're awful people. I can't, I, I can't believe you. They, they look at them and they're like, I got, I got nothing against you. And this is exactly what Paul says to King Agrippa. He's like, man, I wish you were like me in every way, except for these chains. I want you to believe the gospel right now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so no, that's good, man. I got several, several questions come up in my mind here. I got, well, there's two different, two different questions. Let me see which one I want to chase down here. Um, okay. Let me, let me go with this one. Here's my one fear with your book that is not at all reflective of the quality of the book itself. It's more the reader of the book. Mm-hmm. You're, you lay a really thick, I would say provocative biblical foundation. I'm not sure Christians reading it will connect the practical dots the way they should. Um, yeah. and, and maybe, and, and I'm one, this is, I guess here's another part of the question. I'm wondering if you really did stay out of connecting those dots for one, I mean, you're in a certain socio-religious denominational <laughs> environment that I'm surprised B&H published even this. And you even kind of hint, you even I hint that like some people yeah. challenge, you know, is the word subvert the best word? And I can, I can almost right. Right. imagine that 
discussion <laughs> that may or may not have happened behind the scenes, you know? Um, but I was like, no, subvert is exactly, and I love that you stood by it, even defended it from the Greek text of Acts 17. So this is kind of precisely what Luke says in Acts 17. I think sub- subvert is a, a beautiful, perfect word that captures exactly what's going on. So I'm glad you stuck with that. But um, so I, I think Christian, modern day American Christians, evangelical Christians are so steeped in this separation between their religious faith and their political partisan allegiances that I, I just, I worry that they're going to read your book, say, oh yeah, I agree with this. And then not really implement some of the fairly radical implications that you're giving off. Let me give you an example, I guess. Um, that that first, I just, this came to mind when you're reading first Peter two, you know, love the brotherhood, fear God. What that means is love the global brotherhood and fear this global God so that if any scent of your allegiance to your political, your state is harming the brotherhood, globally speaking, then you need to give your allegiance to the brotherhood. So if there are certain American economic policies, you're like, this is great. Look at this. We're thriving in America. But if that is actually hurting other people around the globe, then we need to protest that and say, no, this economic yeah. policy, this way we're all the way down to like the way we treat cattle. And I, I don't know, I'm not going to get into all the you know ethics of like meat <laughs> or whatever, which I know hardly anything about, but it's just, we're so, I mean, there's so many subtleties in how this yeah. flourishing country is flourishing that yeah. is really hurting a lot of people around the globe. Um, or let me just say it as a question. If it's hurting people around the globe, then we need to give our allegiance to the well-being of other people outside of America, not give our allegiance to the well-being of America when it's at the expense of other people. Or even, even I'm not going to get into the military stuff, but I mean, you know, policing the world and removing dictators, creating vacuums where more dictators come in and millions of civilians are harmed by that. Like there's, there's the appearance of some good things that America does that are actually, if you travel outside of America and talk to people, you're like, Oh, we're good for us. Yeah. (laughs) The most part, but man, there's some unintentional, maybe intentional, I don't know, harm being done on the globe. And that should be our allegiance is to the global community, not to the particular state we're born. Anyway, I, I, yeah. No, I, There's just, I, I every, every time you that. said something biblical, I'm like, oh man, the implication of this is X, Y, Z, and that's going to be really offensive to people that are maybe more patriotic than I feel like. Or I think people could read this and say, and still maintain just their same kind of, I would yeah. say, unhealthy forms of patriotism because the dots haven't been connected. Anyway, I this is yeah. me just yeah, talking I, out loud. I'd love to, I mean, respond to that. I, I, I think that's probably a weakness of my book, honestly. Walk away. No, I, I'm, I'm happy to just say like you could walk away and maybe just feel like you were confirmed in what you already believed. And that's I think that's what you're saying, right? Um, like I think the reader could could ro- not be able to connect those dots because they're so steeped in this. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And so, so I do think that's a weakness. I, I but a few reasons why I did it this way. Um, I just, a few things came to my mind. Number one, um, I do want people to just to return to the scriptures and be formed by the scriptures and let the implications play themselves out. I believe the scriptures are powerful and that they will form people. And so I somewhat wanted to leave like the implications. I, I do touch on some things, you know, in my 
third, sixth, and ninth chapter or something yeah. like that. I really touch you talk on about mask mandates. That was bold yeah. and race relations, yeah. which I thought was great. Yeah. So I touch on some things, but um, I, I do want to leave some of those implications to the spirit of God working in each person's heart. Um, and maybe that's a cop out. I, I recognize that. But um, the other thing I would say, though, is that many of these things are really complicated in terms yeah. of policy decisions or yeah. economics or how America is to act as a nation in the world. And to be perfectly honest, I don't feel equipped to yeah. address those situations. And I would argue that most Christians are not equipped yeah, yeah. <laughs> to yeah. no, address no, that's those fair. situations. Yeah. Um, I don't know enough about how we make food. I don't know enough about how we interact in other nations. I don't know enough about how economics works. If we do this thing, will it hurt the poor? Will it help the poor? Man, I feel like we, like one of the things I keep telling pastors is they ask me like, what do I do with politics? And I say, be really clear where the Bible is clear and don't speak with such boldness on where the Bible's not clear. Mm-hmm. And I just keep giving them that line and that's kind of what I tried to follow in this book of like, I just want to be really clear where the Bible is clear and make sure I don't overstep where the implications start to get a little fuzzy in my mind. You know what yeah. I mean? No, that's right. Yeah, that's good. And so I, I recognize like that might not be as helpful to people, but I, I do think as I watch social media or as I watch even people within our own churches, they're very quick to just assume this is all wrong because I know. And I'm like, yeah, but, but do you know, I don't know. Like I know <laughs> I'm, I, I'm an expert on so li- so few things. I'm an expert su- supposedly on one thing. You know what I mean? Like I got a yeah. PhD in one thing. Um, <laughs> and so maybe part of this project is just to step back and say, here's a paradigm. Now you kind of have to go and work it out. And I admit it's really, really tricky to work it out. And I, <laughs> and maybe that's not very satisfying because you just walk in and you're like, well, that didn't change anything. But I, I don't know. I just want to say like the Bible has more to say about our politics, and maybe here's some here's some things that we need to run all of our decisions through, and we probably need to be more careful about how we speak about things. So, those are a few just kind of responses. But I, yeah. Hello, friends. Today, I want to tell you about our recent guest, Doug Smith, and his newest book, Unintentional, How Screens Secretly Shape Your Desires and How You Can Break Free. Look, I'm all about thinking deeply and loving widely, but many of us can't actually think deeply because we're addicted to screens. And that's why Doug Smith wrote Unintentional. It's the tech-focused discipleship book I've been looking for. With biblical wisdom from Greg Boyd, Oz Guinness, and others, Doug helps you and your family overcome screen obsession. So check out the notes uh, where you can find a link to purchase Doug's book, Unintentional. The complexity of economics and politics and the efficacy of masks and vaccines and all this stuff that everybody has a strong opinion about. I'm like, you know, I feel like I've come to the point now when people, if they ask my opinion, what do you think about wearing a mask or what do you think about vaccines? Like, I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't know. Go ask. (laughs) Go ask an epidemiologist what he thinks about the theology of the Book of Romans, and hopefully he's not going to say, "Wow, you know, Paul." What he's like, I don't know. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a biblical scholar. Go ask Preston. You know. So, um, what do you think about like? 
even even some of the broader race conversations, race relations, and in, in the broader society, like these involve you know super complex issues, the intersection of economics and race and history and all this stuff. I'm not a political scientist. I'm not a historian. And, you know, I, I can tell you what I think the Bible says about ethnic reconciliation that I can give a really clear answer, but in terms of like the history of this one country and how race relations have gone down and how to solve some of the dis- economic d- disparities. And so I'm like, I don't know, who am I to say I know anything about this? So, so I, I, I totally, yeah. And that's where I like when I applied it even to like a mask, the mask mandate. And I said, yeah, when we say we're subversive, does that mean like we shouldn't wear masks? And I just I thought that was a pretty clear lineup. I don't think that's advocating for the kingdom of God personally. I think I can make a pretty strong argument. You can disagree with the policies. Yeah. You can think they were stupid. You yeah. can think they were unscientific. Yeah. But I'm not sure people are like, wow. The, that person is really into the kingdom of God because they refuse to do that. And yeah. so th- those were the type of things where I was like, no, to be subversive is to advocate for Christ's kingdom. And I think Christians, American Christians get really confused with our Christian freedom and our American freedom. And we, co- we combine yeah. those things. <laughs> yeah. And so, and the same thing with, um, you know, some of the race riots, I, I lived in Portland during some of those things. And yeah, downtown was literally destroyed in some sense. And I would say Christians who were involved with it, that was wrong of you to do. Hmm. You can protest in a peaceful way, but you should not be robbing businesses and breaking windows. I just, I think that's a really clear, direct line from the scriptures. The way that Jesus and Paul subverted was not through violence. That was, or pillaging or whatever you want to call it. And so... I also know in Portland there were a lot of peaceful race riots uh, or uh, race protests, not riots uh, is probably the best way to say it. So when I applied it, I just tried to say like, hey, I think these, you, you know, um, this this example has been used a lot. And I think I even modify the example, but the difference and it's a uh, Hendrix, uh, I think, who does this, the difference yeah. between jagged and straight lines. I don't know if you read about this, but there's some things in scriptures where murder is wrong. Like, okay, that's like clear. (laughs) Okay. I think that applies to abortion. Right. But then the jagged line is how do you address that? Hmm. And I love that paradigm because I think as churches, we say as Christians, we are against murder. (laughs) And I think all the science shows abortion is murder. Now, if a church then therefore says you need to stand outside of this is like, uh, you know, before um, Roe v. Wade was overturned. But you need to stand outside of pregnancy resource centers and protest and talk to women. I would say that's a jagged line. That's one way to address it. Hmm. That's not the only way to address it. You need to, um, uh, you know, we are for ethnic and racial harmony. Okay, good. Straight line in the scriptures. You need to go downtown and march. Okay, Okay, that's a jagged line. You might not agree that that's the best way to deal with this. Does that make sense? That makes so how, 100% how sense, and I, I love things, that. Yeah, I think churches and pastors need to be careful with saying, here's what we have in the scriptures. Now, I think as, as the kingdom of heaven here representing the earth, we need to think of how do we advocate for those things. But I'm not going to tell you exactly how to do that. Uh, I think that some of that is up to your conscience. I, I at least have found that paradigm helpful for myself. I think that's, that's, yeah, I saw you quoted, I haven't read Hendrix's work. So that's, um, that's, he talks about that, huh? 
Because I need to. He talks about that, but I feel like I'm using the jagged and straight lines a little differently than he is, <laughs> and so I'd have to go back and remember what he. But he he uses that uh, kind of metaphor. Well, I felt that, especially with the race conversation. When again, yeah, I, I just to repeat what you already said. I mean, a really clear, straight, thick line in scripture of ethnic reconciliation. The racism is an affront on the image of God in humans and so on and so forth. And you have a lot of attention given to this in the New Testament and Old Testament. Um, and But then how do you address some of the fracturing of racial race relations in America? I mean, I, I can give you 10 different perspectives from 10 different leading intellectuals right. that they're, they're right. from, from, you know, Thomas Sowell to Glenn Lowry to Ibram Kendi and everybody in between. And, and um, h- how to address it is, is going to look diverse just because you oppose racism doesn't mean that this one kind of secular paradigm of addressing it is the only way to address it. And I mean, we can right. apply that to economics and healthcare and, and environmental questions and so on. Um, and my, my fear there, let me just say one more thing. My fear there though, is that, we, with what I said, is that I recognize that can be paralyzing for me, that I don't do anything then. Um, and so I recognize there's weaknesses to saying, hey, there's a jagged line here. We Maybe we don't need to all address it in the same way. For me, that can produce, uh, I use the word of a quietism, um, that can produce a sort of checking out. <laughs> like, yeah. And I want to, I want to, I'm trying to push myself against that. I don't want to be quietistic. I want to be a Christian who is fully for the flourishing of humanity. I think my my natural reaction is to plug into the church and to say human politics don't really matter. And some of this book was written to myself to say no they do they do matter. Mm. Um I think we can have you know I use the language of dual citizenship. Paul was very comfortable with saying writing to those who are in Christ Jesus and also in Rome, to those who are in in God the Father and in Philippi or Colossae. And he, you know, in Acts itself, I love this. He's not afraid to say, I'm a Roman citizen. <laughs> now, why he does that, we could get into that. His ultimate allegiance is to Jesus Christ, but he can, I mean, this is, he believes he can be a dual citizen, that his citizenship in the kingdom of heaven does not cancel out his Roman citizenship, but it orders it. It orders it. <laughs> it yeah. orders it. It doesn't yeah. cancel it. It doesn't, uh, it demotes it, but it, it, he's okay with still being a Roman citizen. And he uses that to his advantage. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a good word for us. Like it's not, it, you know, it's not, you, you talked about patriotism. There's a, um, a deformation of patriotism that goes too far, but there's something good and true about loving your home and your homeland. Um, there's like, I, my parents are from Oregon. I talked about this. Uh, I lived in Oregon for a while. I love Oregon. Yeah. Is that wrong? <laughs> no, I think that's good. I hope you love like Boise, right? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. that there's a sense in which you love. And then there's a sense in which you hopefully love this nation. <laughs> now you just have to be careful. Like what, where does that love rank for you? Right. And so, there's a healthy patriotism and there's an unhealthy patriotism. Yeah. I had a great conversation with uh, Justin Gibbony. Do you know Justin? Um, we did. A, I, I, I know of him. I don't yeah, know we did a, yeah. a podcast for the Fourth of July talking about this this tension um, about yeah. There, there's there's cultural things, there's geographical things, there's historical things about America that we can absolutely celebrate again, theologically celebrate because it's the Im- image of God coming out in us. It's God's beautiful creation. It's God bringing different ethnic groups together and producing amazing food and 
language and culture and relationships, right. you know? And so, yeah, going back to your point though, um, the paralyzing, cause I, I can, I can suffer from that too. I wonder like it's paralyzing in the sense of separating yourself from secular politics so much that you feel like now you don't do anything good in society or you're, you're not concerned about producing good in society. I wonder if, what if we, again, going back to your own point of focusing a large chunk of our energy on creating the type of polis in the church that we long to see in society, because if we don't, if we jump the gun and are overly concerned with society, when our churches are not the kind of, again, using the term correctly, political gathering it should be, then I think that's wrongheaded. And, you know, I see this and I could pick on the right or the left. I can go either direction here. But like in particular from the right, when you have Christians that were all up in arms over the, you know, CRT being taught in schools and it's like, well, wait a minute, but your own church communities aren't embodying the ethnic reconciliation and diversity of the kingdom that it should like, the, you, you, you are now opening your mouth about what you see as an aberration of how to address race when you or your church has not been even concerned about this conversation within the walls of the church forever, you know? Um, yeah. and, and that's an overstatement. Okay. But, but I, I let's first embody a kingdom economic in our churches, our global churches. Let's first embody ethnic reconciliation, in the church. And once we have that together, it'll, you know, then maybe it'll spill over and as maybe as Tatius or whoever said, you know, the, these Christians are not only caring for their own poor, but now they're caring yeah. for our poor. You know? yeah, right, that's right. And I don't, can you help me tease this out? Cause it sounds almost mechan too mechanical. Like there's a, I, I don't want to make it too chronological. Like, okay, f- let's forget about society. Let's only focus on the church. And after 30 years, when we figure that out, then we could say, like, I don't want to make it too like step one, step two, but I, I think, would you agree at least with the theological like Focus ordering, there? yeah, yeah, maybe priority. ordering, yeah. And what what does that look like? Have you thought through this? I mean, um, yeah, I mean a little bit. I would say it seems like the scriptures do give us. Um, is it Galatians where he says, uh, "Care for all people, yeah. but first uh, the Especially, household of Christ" yeah, or something yeah, like that? Yeah. Is it Galatians six? Is that I think right? It's Galatians six. Um, yeah, yeah. And so I think there's an ordering there that, like, your first moral proximity community is those that you've covenanted with in the local body. Um, and I would say even maybe before that, there is some indications that even your own local family, yeah. <laughs> you're actually yeah. nuclear family, um, you know, yeah, difference between how we view nuclear family now and then is complicated. But, y- you know, it talks about in First Timothy, um, you need to provide for your own household. If you're not, you're worse than an unbeliever. So at least in class, I've drawn up, hey, what is your first responsibility to your family? Why? God, because God created us as nearest to these people. If you're not providing for them then you're, you're not doing what God has called you to. Then you provide for your next nearest community, which I would say is your church. And then you go out from that to society, which is probably first uh, locally, right? <laughs> In terms of your own. Right, right. Um, not your Twitter like we, community. We or, usually yeah. think like nation, like how do I provide for the nation now? And I'm like, no, well, think about your neighborhood maybe next, right? <laughs> like yeah. what can you do? Like start start helping your neighborhood with different things and um, beautifying your community in different ways or starting programs in your community. So I do think there is, I use the term moral proximity, that we are called first to care for those that we're nearest to. Um, I actually think Kevin DeYoung wrote an article about this a long time ago, and he was just saying like, man, we see those commercials about 
orphans overseas and we want to help them so much. And he goes, I really want people to help them um, or the starving overseas. And, and he just pointed out, though, like the first thing you need to do is help those who are near to you, mm. not at the neglect of others, but mm. that there is a sense in which God has specifically called you to a certain place, mm. a certain time, a certain neighborhood, a certain church. And so I do like to use those categories. And I totally agree with you. The first place we need to start, I even said it earlier, the first place we need to start is in the church. But I think I'm speaking to myself here. My tendency, I don't think Christians have always thought this way. I guess we could go through the history. But I, my tendency is then to just completely neglect the wider society. Um, and I think if we lived in a time where there was civil war, mass famine or suffering, we would start to recognize, wow, like as Christians, we really need to step in here. (laughs) And I think historically Christians have, I mean, from what I know of history, it was Christians who first started hospitals. (laughs) It was Christians who first started schools. It was Christians who first started orphan care systems and foster home systems. Now, the larger secular kind of body has taken that over. But I think Christians historically seem to have had a vision for you know, there's orphans all over here and we just need to start something to help them out, like to house them. And so Christians would just start organizations. And maybe because, you know, the secular government does so much for us now, we don't, we don't have that vision anymore. And I, I don't know what to do about that. I just, I just recognizing like the situation that we're in and maybe, maybe we've lost a little bit of a vision for helping those things. And I don't think everybody has lost a vision. I mean, there's, there's people who are helping in these different realms, but um, I'm even trying to get our church more plugged in to like orphan care because there's a, organiz- a Christian organization that's saying, let's help keep kids out of the foster program. <laughs> Why don't we start at the beginning and provide things for families who need help? And I'm like, I love that idea. Sure. So you could help on the back end and actually foster kids, or you could help on the front end and keep kids out of the foster system. Yeah. And I was like, hey, let's partner yeah. with them as a church. Let's see how we can do that. Um, so that's a way the community can gather around and say, and what I love about this uh, program is it's all geographically based. We would actually literally deliver things to people in a 20 to 50 mile radius of mm-hmm. our church. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, that's perfect. We just need to know the needs. Um so I, yeah, I'm kind of going off on different things. I, I do think there's an ordering, but I don't. I want to make sure that we're not neglecting the wider world and their needs if we say we just want to do the church thing. Because I, I think I think that's the main temptation for me. So. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder, though, if, if it, there could be a, a, a little bit of a, just a, a truly a little bit of a false dichotomy there, because if, if the church is truly doing its discipleship well and holistic, it it will, like that, that is, will be good for society. So it's not like, Okay, we have all these flourishing churches that are embodying this kingdom ethic, but the the surrounding culture is going to hell in a handbasket. It's like, well, no, if the church is doing that, I think that will have a radiating effect on on the broader society. Yeah, um, I think you're right. It has it, if it's done it has well, a leavening, if it's done a leavening well. effect on our communities. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, here you brought up um because I do I do str- here's where I struggle, and it's kind of on the same topic. Is what does and I don't want to say political because we've already kind of redefined what that even means, like secular political engagement for the Christian look like. And this is where I think there's just a, a really strong rubber band effect 
among Christians. And I see this, I'll see it even at my own church. Like it's very, pretty partisan church, but not for the pulpit. You'll hear sermons all the time that would say things that very much reflect like in your book. And then you turn around and you talk to somebody five seconds later and you know, they, they're just very steeped in partisan politics. And it's like, it just, right. it just right. take, it's so hard for it to, I just feel like I don't, it's so hard for it to seep in. Um, but let me, let me go back to the, you, you brought up the example of like MLK civil rights movement. And here you had Christians that stepped up and engaged in this very important conversation as they, as they very well should have. A couple things. I mean, I, I, as far as I know, it, it seems like the civil rights movement too, like kind of really intentionally tried to embody Christian principles to bring about a Christian goal of desegregation, ethnic reconciliation. And so that's always kind of the classic example of see Christians should be involved in secular or non-church attempts to embody justice in society. I agree yeah. with all that. I think that's awesome. Here's my one concern, though, is that I think it's it's I, I think I think w- defining what is a justice issue today and how to address it has become so muddled through propaganda oriented media outlets and social media and hyper partisanship. Like, what is it? Because right now, even people listening are like, depending on what side of the aisle they are drinking from, they're going to define all kinds of different justice issues. We need to get rid of these, you know, groomers, these, these drag queen groomers out of our schools and CRT from our schools. Blah, blah, blah. And on the other side, well, we need to make sure that no Republican will get elected to office again, because then we're going to have January 6th all over again. And all these white Christian nationalists are going to overrun democracy. And yeah, you can, you can, I mean, you listen to, if you just, just pick up any mainstream news outlet and you'll have all kinds of justice issues that need to be addressed. And my question is, Ooh, really? Uh, that really worries me for several reasons. One, I think our, our very knowledge of what is an actual justice issue, unlike the civil rights movement is so fogged up through the, yeah. the propag the very biased, medium through which we're even getting our knowledge. And we see this all the time with, um, yeah, you know, um, stuff that flares up on social media. And then if, once you wait 10 seconds, you realize, Oh, there's more to this, you know, news, this little clip or whatever that I thought. Um, or, you know, if you listen to one side of the political aisle telling us what's a justice issue and you listen to the other side and it's like, Oh, there's a whole nother side of this thing. And it just gets really complicated. So I, I just, I feel like there's less, well, two things. Number one, I think there's less clarity on identifying what is a justice issue today. And number two, I'm concerned about putting faith in partisan politics as a means of addressing justice issue. And this is why I go back to the, the civil rights movement and, not, and other issues that didn't seem to be, from my vantage point, as partisanly driven, if you will. Does that make, does that, yeah. I, I'm, again, I'm kind of thinking mm-hmm. out loud. No, I don't have the I answer to this. Tension, I mean, you're just naming things that I feel every day. I, I mean, I, I don't know if I have like, there's no silver bullet to this, but a few things to say, just as you were talking. Number one, we need to stop, Christians need to be, stop being discipled by cable news network. And so I think some of, some pastors need to be like, you guys need to stop watching this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like, just stop. Yeah. Because honestly, it's confusing partially because 
people have made it confusing because they want to win an election and they have a job and, and their goal is to out to uh, elicit rage from you. Um, right. And so like literally we we are I think the church, the American church is being discipled more by cable news than by the scriptures. So maybe the unclarity is coming from the fact that we have not been formed by the worldview and the scripture, the scriptures themselves, the story of God. Mm. Uh, and so I think I think there needs to be some strong words that, that need to be said sometimes that mm-hmm. we need to unplug from this and start <laughs> yeah. doing more Bible studies. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> honestly, like examining the scriptures and um, seeing how did Daniel act in the midst of exile? Like do a whole study on that. Read First Peter 20 times. Uh, you can get a pretty good political theology from First Peter and Daniel themselves. And so uh, that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing is, um, you know, with all the information out there, it is complicated, but it is Maybe, maybe it's less complicated than we think. (laughs) Maybe um, we're confused because we read all these diverging opinions, but again, we're being swayed to and from, to and fro by these uh, people who are just trying to get us to believe what they want us to believe. And so I I hope that the church, I I gain a lot of wisdom from, you know, the, the Southern Baptist Convention has the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission. And you might be like, why, why, why do you need that? Because I don't know what's going on. <laughs> and I have some people that I trust theologically who actually know policy. <laughs> like They're yeah. experts on it. And they provide Southern Baptist churches with, hey, uh, here's this new thing that's coming down, and uh, here's what we think, here, here's what's going on, and here's how we think you should think about it. Now, you might disagree and some of the different things of it, but here's the basics of this issue. Um, we probably need more organizations like that. Um, so I'm really thankful, honestly, that Southern Baptists have that organization because they send pastors, hey, um, you know, when uh, different things happen, even with race relations, they're like, here's some things to think about, like what you should maybe say to your congregation. And you know what was great about it was it was so like balanced and like helpful, like lament, and we need to get to work and we trust that God is sovereign and his kingdom will win. You know, like, like, yeah. like basic, just Christian theology. But it was like they sent us talking points. I get talking points like and you don't have to do the talking points. But it's like, hey, if you need some help in thinking about if you are going to address this political issue. Oh, uh, um, after Roe v. Wade was overturned, they had a long thing that they sent to us to say, how should you talk about this? And one of the things that they said, which I thought was so helpful, was remember, there are people in your congregation who have likely had an abortion. And so be really careful with how you speak about this. Hmm. And I was like, thank you for saying that, because yeah. I think a lot of pastors might forget that, you know, this is this is heartbreaking for many people in our congregation. Um, maybe Maybe they wanted to have an abortion. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they felt like they had to, you know? And how are you going to speak about that? Are you going to have like a celebration service and they're going to be sitting in the corner crying, feeling totally condemned? Um, so what does that look like for your church? I don't know if I'm getting to, to your question um, no, exactly, no, but yeah. but I, I do think I do think we need to come back to that straight and jagged line. Like yeah. pastors, leaders in the church, yourself who are leading organizations— uh, speak clearly where the scriptures speak clearly, and maybe that that'll that'll help us because it looked like 
we look back on the civil rights movement and we were like, man, it was so clear. But you know, during that time, everyone tried to complicate it. Oh, totally, <laughs> right? yeah. Well, you had you had a lot. I mean, even in the, in the letter from the Birmingham jail, you know, yeah. a big part of that King was kind of bemoaning the fact that these white pa- pastors and Christian leaders weren't against what was going on, but it was just, ah, oh, you're moving a little too fast, you know? And right. he's, yeah. I mean, not, one of those now, powerful. Not now, don't go this fast. Right. Yeah. Like, when and, do we and, ever and, move on this? Yeah. So, so it's, it wasn't just racist versus non racist It was, it was different people, different approaches on how to, how to go about achieving something that is a good, has a good goal in mind. So I, I guess my my I just see partisan allegiances that are trickling down, not just trickling, but like celebrated by the church. And I, I just I, I don't know how to wake people up to the theological danger and how uh, of what's going on and, and how it's just absolutely when, when the church and families are absolutely divided over secular partisan politics, partisan allegiances. Satan is just sitting back and laughing. He's just like, oh my word, this is so easy. Just turn on this channel, turn on that channel, look at this social media, whatever. And like, and it's like Christian, a lot of Christians are just blindly, like sheep, just blindly following something that is just stealing their affections away from the gospel of Christ. I, I just, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, is it just some really, really bold but i don't know even just kind of bold preaching then they'll people will leave the church and go somewhere to another party partisan church that you know agrees with the, what they believe about secular politics um i just yeah, i don't I know mean, but this, this whole book was a book on political discipleship yeah and it is trying to wake people up to say like i said at the beginning of this conversation if you're kind of a only romans 13 political theology and i've got my party that i submit to i guess what i'd say is submit and subvert applies to your maybe partisan loyalties as well. So I think your fear in this is that somebody's going to read this and say, hey, I'm Democrat, I'm Republican, so I'm going to (laughs) submit to the Democrats and subvert the Republicans or the opposite. (laughs) My whole paradigm is no, Christianity transcends all of that and you submit and subvert both. Yeah, (laughs) I think you said it. I just think that people... A lot of American Christians, again, I'll say it again, are so steeped in partisan allegiances or allegiances to one side of the aisle or the other, same thing, um, that that it might take a stronger hit in the head for them to realize that that they're kind of not living out the very thing you're you're talking about. So again, I, I think I think I think what you accomplished in the book is. Spot Tim, yeah. Tim Keller talked about it on one maybe podcast or something like what were um, early Christians for? And he gave five things that I can always only remember four of them. But he was like, um, they were for caring for the poor. Uh, sounds like kind of a leftist thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, they were for also uh, racial ethnic harmony. Again, sounds like a left thing. They were also for a strong and strict sexual ethic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sounds like a right thing. And then, uh, man, I can't even remember the other ones. Probably um, uh, exposing a fetuses. So like. Oh, uh, yeah. Abortion. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Thank you. It was uh, we do not expose our children to die. Uh, And so you, you have two right things and two left things. And he was just like, that's the kingdom of God. Like, yeah. Um, and you can disagree. Maybe you think Republicans are better at caring for the poor. What, right. So that's where the debate comes in. 
Um, but at least their platforms <laughs> and how they speak of these things, I think Christians can say we're for that and we're for that. And so we are we're homeless. We're right. exiles. We don't we don't fit in either right. either party very well. At the same time, when you go to the booth, you do sometimes have to make a decision. And so I tell people which party when it comes to this, if you have to decide, because sometimes you have to decide which party most represents your Christian values. Yeah. And if neither of them do, I think it was David French who recently said this, to cast your vote for the party or the person who is immoral is not what you should do because if you're choosing the least evil choice, you're choosing evil. <laughs> In other words, he's trying to break that division of like, well, what if I don't have any other choice? And what if it's the the least worst option of all options? Well, you're continuing the status quo then. You are putting your vote behind something that you disagree with. Yeah. And there's no way that reform's ever going to happen if you do that. Yeah. Yeah. So that means sometimes you got to kind of say, I'm not going to vote for either of these people. Well, and going back to like, how do we even know who's more evil than the other or less evil? How do we even know who's going to actually care for racial reconciliation more than the other candidate? Who's actually going to care for the, you know, all these things. I'm like, it's, and I I don't want to get, I don't want to get too cynical, but I kind of (laughs) do. Like I did. Part of me is like, the Neil Postman, you know, like it's, it's all kind of a power, it's all a power grab. And, and I've said this before, people can, I don't know. Well, do what you want, I but would like, say do, though, do, if do, we don't have any trust, we don't have a society. We have to have some trust. And I, I understand the cynicism, Yeah, but like society will not function if you don't have trust. So we have to, in some sense, believe if people say, if a presidential candidate or a governor says, this is what I'm going to do. I mean, like our initial reaction should be to trust them that that's that's really what they they will do. Um, I I know you can poke holes in that, but I just want to mention like we there has to be some trust in society for it to run. Because <laughs> if if we run on all cynicism, everything falls apart, right? We don't believe anything yeah. anyone says, then there's nothing to do. I I hear that. I get. I don't know if the language of trust of pistis to get back to the New Testament would be. Would I mean, I, trust have... in terms of like social relationships, not in terms of faith. <laughs> like, um, you believe that I was going to come on here and tell you what I really think. And if yeah. not, you wouldn't have had me on here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I believe like you're going to ask genuine questions. We can have a social relationship because there's a level of trust between us. You see what I'm, I'm getting at? Like, I'm not saying you have to believe in them in terms of like, have your faith in them. But I'm saying like, you, you won't have conversations with people who you don't trust. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I guess I'm not talking about like I, I, average everyday citizen, but more like Babylonian leaders who are doing whatever it takes to get into power Yeah, or maintain power. Like, do, do Democrats really at the top, do these elite white people really care for the lives of minority people? Or are they using that as a means of getting more votes, you know, um, is Trump, is Trump really anti-abortion? I mean, it wasn't five seconds before he started running for president um, or is he like, well, if I'm a Republican, I have to say this, you know, like, does he really deep down, is he up late at night saying, how can I really reduce the number of abortions? Or is he up late at night thinking, how can I get power, more votes and maintain power? And is Biden 
I mean, I can keep, you know, it's equal yeah, on both yeah, sides. Yeah. And that, that's know, where I don't, when people, even when politicians, let's, let's just say maybe on the, on the big stage and I don't want to lump them all together. I'm sure there's variation, but like, am I, are they really deeply concerned about these values that may resonate with the Christian worldview or are they simply using, are they playing the game to get power and maintain power? Um, and, and that's, that's where, where you, you have to look at the character of a person, right? If the character of a person screams, this dude's, this woman's just in it for power. Yeah. Well, then, yeah, you don't trust him as much. But if the character of a person and the kind of, you know, span of their life is that they're a person of their word and that they do what they say they're going to do, well, then you do have to just kind of, I think you have to lay it down and hopefully believe them. Now, um, when you were speaking, I just thought of Richard Mao when he said um, the line of, Babylon or Jerusalem or something like that runs in each of our hearts. And so we like to talk hmm. about like, you know, yeah, we are people of Jerusalem. We're not Babylonians. Uh, we're not of the city of, of Babylon. I thought Richard Mao was really helpful just to remind us like that line of good and evil also sure. runs through your own heart. So sure. some days yeah. I act more like the city of Babylon and some days I act more like the city of Jerusalem. And that's a good just kind of dose of humility while I'm trying to advocate for the kingdom of God. Maybe the first question, you brought this up earlier. The first question I need to ask is, am I being a citizen of Jerusalem today? Yeah, no, <laughs> And I'm not talking about the, the land of Jerusalem. I'm talking about the heavenly city. Because it really, you know, a, it, it starts with it, it starts with us. It starts with individuals. Uh, and it starts with small actions of faithfulness and small actions of virtue and care and love for others. You want to change the political system um, be, begin by, you know, being kind to your wife and loving her yeah, totally. <laughs> and, and being a good friend and caring for your kids. So we talk about corruption in society, but, um, what about abuse in the home? You know, like, are, are we the type of people where we talk about society's going to hell? Well, what about pornography in the own home, our own yeah. homes? What are, we complain about sexuality in the world, but are, yeah. are we being pure? Uh, and so I, I think it comes back to, you know, I, at the beginning, I said, evangelicals are all about personal relationship. And now I'm coming back to it. And I'm saying, look, that is important, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That's good, man. I think the Stoics talked about that. Although that always just sounds sexy and like, yeah, the Stoics used to. I, I, I think that that, yeah, beginning with your beginning with yourself or even, you know, the, the, as you said, the, the, you know, the family or your friendship group, the church and the greater society around you, you have these kind of, you know, sphere concentric spheres that, that move out. And the very first sphere is, is your own personal holiness, which again, isn't at odds with public holiness, but is the beginning, uh, step toward ordering, you know, your, your life rightly. And Patrick, always wonderful to talk to you. Um, so the book again is political gospel, public witness in a politically crazy world. And, um, I just want to say just, um, I, what I love most about this book and why people should read it, obviously, if you're interested in kind of how, how a Christian should think through politics, I would say this book is good for that. It's even better for just like 
the, the way you situate people in the first century New Testament gospel is so, so good. So even if you can care less about politics or even the word politics makes you mad, um, you would if, you, if you're interested in first century Christianity, this book is so, so good. So um, thank you for this book. I hope it finds its way in the laps of many people. So thanks so much, Patrick, for writing it. Thanks for being on Theology in the Rock. Thanks, Preston. It's been fun talking to you. You ask great questions, so it's been great. This show is part of the Converge Podcast Network.